Resolute Square. Welcome to The Zero Line, produced by Resolute Square. I'm Sergeant Sarah Ashton Cirillo of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, and every week we'll be bringing you inside Ukraine's war for liberty and liberation against the Russian enemy, while explaining how a victory by us on the battlefield isn't just vital for the Ukrainian people, but for the world as a whole. We will push back against the lies regarding this war for freedom and take you straight to the front lines of the fight for democracy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Zero Line. I am Lisa Seneca with Resolute Square, and I am here with, as always, Sarah Ashton Cirillo. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Lisa. How are you? We haven't done this in a while, so here I am talking over you. But as you said, as always, and hopefully we will be making this a regular appearance weekly here on Resolute Square. And speaking of The Zero Line, I was just there a couple of weeks ago, and it's something that I think we should talk about. But currently, I'm coming to you from Washington, D.C., where I've been meeting with representatives, including senators and congressmen, to discuss the situation uh, on the road to victory for Ukraine. For those who don't know, I am a sergeant in the armed forces of Ukraine, serving with the main directorates of moral and psychological support, the general staff of the Army. And last time the audience heard from me, I was spokesperson for Territorial Defense Forces, But now, I don't know. I don't know if they've booted me out or up, but here I am in (laughs) D.C. trying to get us closer to victory. Most people consider going to D.C. a step up. There are some of us who aren't quite so settled on what that is, but um, it certainly is a step up for you. And we're super happy about your promotion. Let's take a few steps back for folks who haven't joined us before. You are an American serving in Ukraine. Give us a little of the background story. How did you end up in Ukraine and you didn't go over there as a member of the military? I didn't. And that ties into my trip to the United States uh, currently. So I represented Ukraine two other times in front of uh, different members of the House and Senate. Once a year ago uh, this week in December of 2022, again in May of 2023, However, as you alluded to, I didn't come over to serve in the Ukrainian Armed Forces. I came over as a war correspondent and eventually enlisted after seven months at the frontline city of Kharkiv and along the front lines in Luhansk and Donetsk, otherwise known as the Donbass region of Ukraine. I received an invitation earlier in November to address the Foreign Press Correspondents Awards in Manhattan. And after discussing with command, we decided to go ahead and make another trip to D.C. before heading to New York City. And that ties back into my time as a journalist. Journalists are heroes, make no mistake about that. And Ukraine, being this beacon of freedom, understands what free press and free speech is about, even during a time of war and martial law. And one thing that the Russian disinformation agents like to say is that we don't have freedom in Ukraine. As an American, as a believer in the American ideas and ideals that have led us to become the greatest republic and greatest democracy in history, I can say I would not be fighting on the side of Ukraine if it didn't share the same values that we do in the United States, all the best values that we have oftentimes taken for granted. And so one of those times was as a journalist, being able to understand what the civilians were going through in Ukraine on the front line. No American, no foreigner has spent more time in the Russian border zone over the last 22 months than I have. 
I've fought there. I've reported from there. I've come under attack uh, there. I was wounded there. And to know that my friends in the press corps still valued the fight for Ukraine's liberty and liberation as much as I do, inviting me back to address the Foreign Press Correspondents Awards was possibly the greatest honor I've had during my last two years uh, focused on this fight for freedom. And one of the reasons I love to be associated with Resolute Square and all of the sponsors and all of the contributors to Resolute Square is because you, Lisa, as well as the others who write and contribute to Resolute Square's brand, understands that democracy is fragile, it's worth fighting for, and ultimately it's worth bleeding for if necessary. When we talk about the zero line, we're focused very much on the zero line in Ukraine, but there are zero lines for democracy all over the globe. We recently saw Poland take some steps back uh, toward democracy, which was a really great thing to see. But what's your general sense, sort of geopolitically, of where democracy is at this point and just how big that threat is? We certainly see uh, a lot of threats happening here in the U.S. Lisa, one of the most beautiful aspects of democracy is its elasticity. Ultimately, it can be stretched in directions that are fearful. It can be stretched in directions that bring us cause for consternation and ultimately make us fear for what's next. But democracy is inherently good and democracy is inherently flexible enough to always rebound and bring us forward. And what does it that path forward look like? As you talked about in Poland, it talked about hundreds of thousands of people being able to freely debate where they wanted to go. Ultimately, it went in the direction of liberal democracy. It's the United States, after being challenged in the courts, after being challenged on the streets, after being challenged at the Capitol itself, being able to say, hey, we want the rule of law. And the rule of law means that we can have debate, we can have discussion, and we can, in fact, engage every aspect of freedom that we hope to have in our lives while still existing within this society and still being able to prop up government as a whole to step in when it's needed and necessary. And so to see this in Poland, to see it in Ukraine as they thought Ukraine was going to fall in three days, we're still fighting, we're moving ahead. Don't believe the lies, and I'm going to call it the lies and the Russian disinformation, that we are struggling, we are regrouping, and we're putting human life first. That's the other part of democracy that's beautiful. We put the human being first in Poland, in Ukraine, and especially in the United States. Yeah, I think people don't have a full appreciation living in the United States if, if you have always lived here or you have come to the U.S. from another democratic country. You don't understand the difference in mindset of that value of human life between somewhere like Russia and a democratic country like Ukraine. One of my biggest critiques of those who are debating whether it's worthwhile to fund Ukraine's efforts at liberty and liberation, whether it's worthwhile to fund different democratic-facing programs around the globe, is the idea that what's the alternative? Is North Korea the alternative? Is this the world they want to live in? Is the theocracy in Iran the world they want to live in? Is Nicaragua the world they want to live in in the global south? And it's specifically... Is the Ruski Mir, otherwise known as Russia's world, is this imperialistic, colonialistic, despotist regime, this mafia, this gangster regime, 
Do you want to live in that sort of world? Or do you want to live in a world where you can go to the Capitol and protest peacefully? Do you want to live in a world where you can go ahead and make accusations, however biased they may be, against our public officials without risk of arrest? And so, again, to those who question what's taking place in the United States and among our partners, including Ukraine, who I'm currently serving in the armed forces for, what is the alternative? And if they can't answer that, then I think their argument is feeble on its face and without any sort of valid ability to be brought forward as a a tangible way to bring into a discussion. So you have this very interesting uh, perspective and the experience several times now of going back and forth between a country at war and coming into the United States um, to have meetings with officials here. What is that like? My power went out yesterday. My power was out for less than 24 hours. And I felt like I was really facing a hardship. <laughs> like I was trying, you know, how am I going to heat my house tonight? I, I live in a very cold climate. What's going to, does not begin to compare with what people, not just people on the zero line, but but people living anywhere in Ukraine are facing all the time. Is it, do you get just psychological whiplash going back and forth between these two places? Before I answer that question, Lisa, I do want to acknowledge that although I'm personally involved in fighting a literal war, it doesn't lessen the challenges and hardships that people in the United States are facing. And it's one of the areas that my trips back and forth have made me realize everyone has to be able to look after their own interest while also looking at societal uh, benefits. And so when I see the inflation that people are dealing with, however, without getting too political, it was interesting because when I see prices up three times since the last time I was there, I find it hard to look at it and blame on proper economics and more on probable greed of the corporations. And as a capitalist, I'm all for making a profit. But again, a six pack of Coke shouldn't cost $8.50 or $9. And a Big Mac shouldn't cost $12. And so ultimately, I want to accept the reality that the American people, before they fund Ukraine, have to make sure that they are able to support their families. They're able to afford heating oil uh, in the Northeast. They're able to make certain that their kids can eat nutritious foods. In Ukraine, though, our challenges are unlike anything that have really been seen in Europe or in the United States or really anywhere in the world outside the global South in the last 80 or 90 years. To be able to travel to the United States, it took me about 48 hours. It was a 15-hour train ride from Kyiv to the Polish border because all of our airports are closed due to Russian terrorism. We can't fly anywhere in Ukraine because of the terrorist state that is Vladimir Putin's regime. Once you got to Poland, you have to get to Warsaw or Krakow. From there, you fly into the U.S. We arrive, but I have to tell you, there is no place like the U.S., I have come to love the United States in a way that I never had prior to fighting on behalf of Ukraine. And that's because I understood intrinsically what the United States values and ideas and ideals truly are. Because although Ukraine is the cradle of Europe and truly the center of Europe, nonetheless, 
the values that the Ukrainian people share are most closely aligned with the people of the United States, the sense of liberty and freedom and a desire for independence that no other people really have known in the last 250 years, except for maybe the French Revolution and, and before that, the American Revolution. You and I have known each other for a year or so now. And I'm grateful for our friendship. Uh, if, if, if the audience only knew what I would call <laughs> you about, uh, this woman is not just my co-host and my editor. She is very much my therapist as well. And I'm blessed <laughs> to know Lisa. So, yes. Well, you you know how remarkable I think you are, and and I am really honored that you share with me as much as you do. So thank you for that, truly. So we were we were talking around this time last year, and you've gone this full cycle of seasons, and psychologically, which is part of the position that you now have, heading into these months. What is that, that transition like? What was it like for you? I, I remember talking with you and you were making long, long treks through the snow to be able to get where you were dug in. And it wasn't, you know, you're not ending up at a Westin when you get there. You're in a trench. What is it like physically? And then what is it like mentally to know that you're heading into a long, hard winter? Two weeks ago, I went back to the front. And so ultimately, it brought back the memories you're talking about. So although I'm at headquarters now in Kiev, I still go to the front lines on a regular basis. And so it's not just the Russian weapons that you're up against, but you're also up against the elements. And there was a moment that we had to use night vision in order to access the trench line and then ultimately the dugout where we were going to be staying for the evening. And for those who are listening, the dugout is where you sleep and it's maybe 9, 10, 12 feet underground, uh, surrounded by dirt. And you're down there, and there was no power. The generator was out. We couldn't run it because we were so close to the enemy. And so I had to make a recording uh, with another soldier. It was an interview I was doing regarding the morale and, and psychological state of the troops, which, by the way, let me throw this out there, very strong among our assault brigades, among those who were carrying out these uh, very fierce battles against the enemy. So I'm recording him in night vision. We're in basically complete silence because we are nine, 10 feet underground. And in the end, ultimately, you leave there and you realize how blessed and lucky you are. And I learned this when I started actually fighting I'm in an infantry unit, although, as I said, I'm assigned to Kiev now. And for four months, you realize, am I going to see the sunrise the next day? And that's the only thing that's important. And so when I first arrived as a journalist, which was only going to be for a short time, a couple of weeks, and from being a journalist to enlisting in the armed forces of Ukraine, I went through one sort of metamorphosis. Then as a soldier, when I was in the United States the last time in December, I was there, as I said, in May as well, but the first time I should say, I understood that speaking about war in theory, even as a journalist, was not the same as serving in combat. and so. In order to achieve that understanding, I was assigned to an infantry unit, and I, as we've discussed, and as those who have listened before know, I was injured in battle, I fought in close contact with the Russians, and in the eternal heroes that are no longer with us in this world, you are fighting for them, and you are fighting to see the sunrise. Nothing else matters. 
And taking that experience back to the U.S. with me, if anything, it's made me more empathetic. As I mentioned, understanding the challenges people go through. If life is boiled down to fighting to make sure that the people around you are not genocided, to make sure that you are not killed by the enemy, and all you want to do is see the sunrise, you realize that people go through their challenges. And it doesn't lessen the challenges that people have. You just understand that you've chosen a path that's different than most people will ever see in their lives, but it's one that because I voluntarily chose is now part of my experience. And so what that means is my life is wholly different than even a year ago when you went ahead. Resolute Swear, you and, and Stuart and some of the other team members reached out to me before I was even in the armed forces of Ukraine. You reached out to me when I was a journalist. Then I started writing for you while I was at the front on many occasions, and we started doing this podcast. And so looking back, at some of what I wrote, I stand by everything I wrote, but I view it now through a different lens. I realize, wow, bureaucracy sucks much worse than I could have ever imagined. But those I'm serving with are greater heroes than I could have ever imagined. And so you go on and you move forward. You also realize after what we went through last winter, that the civilians, you talked about your power being out for 24 hours. We went days in the Capitol with no power, uh, six, seven days at a time, no water. I personally have did not have running water for the last, let's be conservative, last eight or nine days before I left. I was having to fill up water in these buckets for the toilet uh, to, to bathe. And somebody said to me, hold on a second, why are you still doing this? And I said, this is the reality. I said, I know I'm leaving in nine or 10 days. Why am I going to move when I lived in the field like this for three or four weeks at a time without water, uh, without running water? right? We had bottled water. And so these are the small things that folks don't necessarily realize you're willing to endure, but everything's worth enduring for democracy. Everything is worth enduring for freedom. Everything's worth enduring for liberty, because ultimately, if we're not willing to endure not having water for a few days, then what are we really willing to give up and to cede for this illusionary safety? Because fascism and despotism makes these promises. Truly, fascism and despotism come straight from the devil. It's satanic. And I'm getting biblical due to the fact that Satan made a lot of promises. But ultimately, it's up to us to decide, are we going to give in to what seems easy? So when these fascists are making promises, saying they're going to be the only ones that bring safety, the only ones that are going to bring security, the only ones that bring uh, financial prosperity, it's bullshit. And I know I'm cursing, but since Rick curses, I'm going to curse. It's absolute bullshit. Don't fall for it. If we're willing to bleed, if we're willing to suffer a little bit, then we will be rewarded with the freedom that we deserve as folks who understand what liberty really means in the United States, in Ukraine, in Poland, and around the globe. First of all, I want to comment on what you just said about fascists being the source of security. The source of insecurity and fear and sowing distrust within communities and within a country, that's the fascists. So they create the environment of fear and distrust and uncertainty, and then say that they're also the solution to it. And people really need to think through, because we hear it in the U.S. right now, as well. We are hearing a lot of messages that Americans need to fear 
their fellow Americans, that there are good Americans and there are bad Americans and it's a black and white situation and it's so not black and white. Very, very few situations are black and white. So I want to talk to you a little bit about the position that you have now. Um, You alluded a minute ago to people being able to not really rise above their circumstances, but deal with changing circumstances that probably they never anticipated they were going to be in a, most a lot of the people who are uh serving in the active war in Ukraine were not uh not even planning on being members of the military or certainly thought that career was over you made the leap from journalist to combat medic so people do make this this transition families have to deal with that transition. Tell me a little bit about what that's like and how you make that pivot. Because it's sort of unimaginable for those of us who've never been in a war situation. I'm so glad you brought this up. Speaking about my department, because we discuss this all the time, the Major General that I advise, so I'm an advisory aide to Major General Vladislav Plotkov, who, in fact, uh, was our commander in some NATO exercises right before the full-scale invasion, very forward-thinking general. And the department, the directorate or department, main department for the armed forces of Ukraine, it's, as I mentioned, moral and psychological support. And what that means is we are in charge of trying to make certain that the mental, spiritual, uh, and emotional well-being of the troops and their families are taken care of. You talked about making a switch. At the beginning of the full-scale invasion, we had a 200,000-person military, professionals. Now we have a million people, more or less, bakers, IT professionals, teachers, welders, who came together. And so what our department does is make certain that those who chose to heed the call this sacrifice that they were making on behalf of their loved ones and on behalf of the world, including the United States, because by fighting the Russian terrorists now, the world is safer for it, to make certain that these people who were willing to do this change, to engage in the sacrifice, that they are positioned in the most healthy way possible when it comes to those core values and when it comes to the values of, let's say, the spirit de corps. And that's what my department does. So coming from a world of communications, I was asked to join this department in order to make certain that our troops felt that they had the ability to make sure that their concerns were not only heard, but acted upon in ways of psychological readiness, combat resilience, to make sure that if they felt they were dealing with some psychogenic issues, that they were going to get help. And one of the differences between Ukraine and the Russian tyrants is that we care about the human being. And by early intervention, by literally sending psychologists out to the trench lines, which is what we do, we're able to try to go ahead and engage in this psychological first aid, which not only helps in the moment to reestablish the the core of these people that are are there sacrificing for everyone, but to also lessen the impact of post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, to lessen the impact of some TBI issues, even though we're not a medical, we're psychological, 
these are ways we're trying to stay ahead because post-victory, we're going to be talking about a million plus people being demobilized and heading back into society. And we're figuring out ways through the Center for Scientific Research, through these chaplaincy, you know, with the spiritual areas, psychological areas, to make certain that they're able to not only be heroes today, but take part in this rebuilding because the pillars of democracy don't just automatically appear. The victory on the battlefield is only the first step. The Russian threat will exist unless we are able to not only engage in complete victory over them, which we will, total victory is coming, but to also make certain that these uh, psychological operations that the Russians are trying to always employ across the globe, Ukraine is an impenetrable fortress when it comes to that. And what is the fortress built out of? The pillars of democracy. And the only way we can make sure those pillars stand is by making sure that our troops today are healthy tomorrow. You are incredibly strong and you are very good at deflecting any questions that could possibly pertain to you personally. <laughs> so totally going to put you on the spot. You're dealing with this same stuff. The, all of the things that you just described, your work is to help people with. You have that happening as well. But you're across the world from everything that you knew before going to Ukraine. Your your friends are here. You have a language, a significant language barrier. I'm sure your Ukrainian has improved since you got there, but you did not put your feet on the ground in Ukraine knowing how to speak Ukrainian uh, or Russian. So what do you do for yourself to be checking in, to be resetting, to make sure that you're okay now and down the road after Ukraine's victory? I'm not going to lie to you because none of us are, are superheroes. Ultimately, I do suffer already signs of PTSD. What I didn't know prior, and I have some good friends, uh, one of the members of the Nevada State Board for Higher Education uh, is a veterans uh, activist. He's an elected official in Nevada, a good friend of mine. So his name is Byron Brooks. And Byron always said, I'll be your battle buddy because he's been in combat and, and he's a combat vet. Ultimately, if I need to reach out to people, be it Byron or other friends of mine, I do so. I also rely on my peers in the armed forces of Ukraine. I suffer signs of PTSD. I thought PTSD growing up, I'm 46. I grew up around Vietnam vets. And I understood PTSD to be all of a sudden jumping if you heard a loud noise, right? Because that's what Vietnam vets were going through. Uh, sorry, I'll cut this in a second. Because the Vietnam vets were going through situations that were really ignored by a lot of people. So I was always taught that, hey, you know, stay away from them. Don't make loud noises. Don't startle them. I understand now that PTSD is in all forms. I have a really strange, almost reverse notion of PTSD that at nighttime, I keep my lights on because if the power goes out, then I know we've been hit. And so I still sleep with my lights on in order for it to be an alarm of some sort, and that happens. Then yesterday, I was in D.C. I was speaking to somebody at an African summit. Uh, we attended, uh, myself and my commander, attended an African technology summit uh, yesterday. And I'm looking over the person's shoulder, and I froze. 
And I froze because I saw an airplane in a city. I'm only used to seeing airplanes now on the battlefield, helicopters and airplanes. And then I realized, oh, I'm in Washington, D.C. So everyone is going through it, including me. How do we deal with it? We talk about it. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's something that we work through, something we work through with our peers, something we work through with society. I understand there's going to be sacrifice because there's now people in my life that have told me I can't deal with the war. I can't deal with hearing about the war. And so you have to understand that everyone is entitled to live in a world that makes them comfortable and that I can't force my experiences onto them. So although I know what I'm dealing with, it's my job, the onus is on me to be able to activate the channels that I can in order to be comfortable and to basically become recentered and refocused. And if people don't want to deal with that, the onus is on me to either choose not to engage them or work through the fact that not everyone has the same experience as the millions of us in Ukraine that are dealing with it. And the issue with the sacrifice of the PTSD and some of the trauma, it's not just the million plus soldiers, it's families, it's millions and millions of civilians who come under attack from the Russians and have for 22 months because Russia attacks civilian infrastructure sites with drones all the time. They're terrorist state. That's why I say it. And we've done a great job, I think, as a world. Let's talk about this. The European Union, United States, Ukraine, leading the way in understanding the human psyche, the human brain, and the human soul to come together and say, all right, these troops, they're sacrificing. These troops are going through things that can never be taken back. So how can we go ahead and make certain that society can work with them under these parameters? And myself as a soon-to-be veteran one day, whether it's another year or three years or however long the full-scale invasion lasts until we can declare victory, full victory, and return to the country's 1991 borders, or it's somebody who served in Operation Enduring Freedom, somebody who served in Desert Storm, the Vietnam vets who are still around, the onus is on us as a society to say, hey, people fought for democracy, people fought for freedom, now let us work with them within the parameters of society to move forward and say, you're not broken, you just have a different worldview, and as such, we still accept you, how can we best work with you? Oh, I really love that, Sarah. There, This is a wonderful time of year, and it is also an incredibly difficult time of year for so many people. So whether it's uh, combat stress or it's with so many families that are ripped apart right now because of political divisions in the country being as deep as they are and all of the other things that people struggle with. Uh, especially this time of year when we're bombarded with images of everything being as perfect as it could possibly be. And very few people, you know, have the hallmark moment. We're just, that's not, that's, that's why people like that stuff so much. It's because nobody, if you actually live that, it would be so saccharine, you wouldn't be able to stand it. But it's not, those aren't the lives we live and certainly not the life that you're living right now. So I, I appreciate so much the work that you're doing in Ukraine and that you're reminding all of us that 
we need to talk about this stuff. We can't hold it inside. We have to be willing. There are people to reach out to, whether it's support lines or it's supportive people in our community or coworkers or somebody over a phone line or signal talking to you, you know, in the U.S. when you're in Ukraine, we all have to have that support. We do. And we, I'm, I'm glad you bring this up. Not everything's perfect. But it's not shameful to want to imagine or wish a perfect world even for a short time. And one thing I tell people who come over to Ukraine and they say, why are there people in Kiev drinking coffee in coffee shops? Guess what? We're fighting. So those people don't have to suffer. And in the United States, be it homeless vets, be it people who are going through PTSD, be it through folks who just have general trauma, as you said, due to the politics, we can't dismiss it. What we can say is, there's avenues and actions that can be taken to show people they're not alone. And guess what? If somebody wants to escape into uh, an Irish coffee over the holidays, and that's what it takes, if somebody needs to call a prevention hotline, guess what? There's no shame in it. There's no shame for asking for help. Why? You've earned it. If you're a veteran and you're going through a very dark time, guess what? You've earned the right to call up that hotline, to contact the VA, to contact somebody you haven't talked to that, but you served with, to contact your platoon sergeant, you haven't talked to them in 10 years, call them. They're going to find time for you, and tomorrow comes, and guess what? The sun will rise. We fought to make sure, and we fight to make sure the sun will rise for everyone around us. And so no shame in reaching out, especially during the holidays. This must be really meaningful, obviously, all of the work that you have done. Um, since joining the military and even before that when you were you were there as a journalist must be incredibly gratifying sort of a funny word but you know what I mean it's there's a significant import to what you're doing does what you're doing now feel even more that way it's such a critical role I'm rolling my eyes because it's something another part of the PTSD is I try not to think of anything but the moment I, as you know, and, and uh, the producers know, I signed a multi-book deal back in May. I've missed three deadlines on it. One of the reasons I missed the deadlines, because I don't know how to write a story that's not complete yet. And I don't want to write a story that's not full of my own soul and full of my own passion. So right now, I have enough passion to put it out for the people around me, to put it out for freedom, to put it out for democracy. And so I can't answer that question, not because I'm going to play coy and be like, oh, no, it's, yeah, I, I get it. I'm fighting a war in the public eye. I've been through a lot of challenges. I have been discussed on, on a national scale for, for quite some time now. But for me, if I start thinking about anything but the sun rising and whatever my task is in front of me, I can't lose that focus, Lisa. And it's not uh, trying to avoid your question. It's me saying that I don't have the capacity to both look ahead also to reflect on what's happened and still serve in the moment. And in order for me to get through day by day, it's all about the moment. Really, now that I'm in headquarters, I've been in Kiev for a little while, maybe I can look a week or two ahead because there is some planning that goes into it. But other than that, it's still very much a day-by-day -day situation. Well, one of the things that is so valuable about these conversations that we have is that we're going to have this ability to listen back years from now and and follow that progression and be able to see how it turned out and how how very worth it 
it all was because I have absolute confidence that this ends with a free, independent, liberated, democratic Ukraine. And we we can't thank you enough for talking with us about all of this and uh, being part of the Resolute Square family. You bring a perspective that we otherwise would absolutely not be able to have. And you have immense gratitude from us. Lisa, one thing I know, democracy is worth dying for. I don't plan to die. I plan to return to the United States, to my country. The United States is the single greatest country, as I mentioned earlier, that I, I been founded during modern times. I can't compare it to the Greeks or Romans, but those were empires. The United States is not an empire. The United States is this beautiful experiment in human freedom. And ultimately, when I return to the U.S., I plan to return fully intact, alive, and ready to proceed with whatever my next challenges are. That I've had this opportunity in this small moment of my life to give something back is simply just an extension of of what I was taught growing up and what I've really seen from the Ukrainian people. And you expressed where Ukraine is going and what it is. Sarah, such a wonderful opportunity to talk with you again. I'm looking forward to being back with you again next week. We're going to be here every Thursday. Be productive, get a little rest while you're in DC, and we will see you on the Zero Line again next Thursday. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Zero Line, a podcast brought to you by Resolute Square. Resolute Square's mission is to inform, lead, and connect. And The Zero Line is one of the tools that followers of Resolute Square can use to fight back against tyranny while championing democracy. Please like and subscribe to The Zero Line wherever you podcast and follow us on Twitter at Resolute Square or visit ResoluteSquare.com. Thanks once more for hanging out at the Zero Line.